Rosamond Bartlett is a scholar of Russian literature and the author of Tolstoy, A Russian Life. This is Rosamond Bartlett. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Duck Tank. All right, I'm here with uh, Rosamond Bartlett. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Pleasure to be with you. Um, so I'm curious, you, um, you are a prolific translator. Uh, you have uh, written a biography here that I want to talk to you about, Tolstoy, A Russian Life. Um, what compelled you to write a new biography of Tolstoy, given how much has already been written about the guy? That's a very good question to begin with. Probably my answer is going to be rather unorthodox. I ended up uh, writing a biography of Chekhov before I moved to Tolstoy and wasn't even planning to write on Chekhov, I have to say, in 2001 when I when I got the contract as my doctoral thesis was on, on Wagner and I thought I was going to become a, a music historian and, and I had a contract uh, to write a whole book about opera in Russia. So that's where I thought I was heading. And funnily enough, um, you know, life is strange, isn't it? I, I just by quite by chance um, received an invitation to write a biography of Chekhov and, and no scholar of Russian literature is going to turn that down. And in my case, I was already translating Chekhov's stories. And so I immersed myself in Chekhov for a year. I was also editing an edition of his letters for Penguin Classics. And I was at the back of my mind puzzling over Chekhov's relationship with Tolstoy. And when my agent took me for lunch with my editor, she said, before we got there, you'll know, you know, he'll go he's going to ask you what your next book is going to be. And I just said Tolstoy without even thinking about it. So um, it's not a very good answer to your question, is it? Because it was a completely oh. irresponsible. <laughs> and then, of course, I thought, well, I've had such an amazing time writing about Chekhov, writing a biography and at the same time translating his stories. And I found, you know, my inspiration for the biography came from the experience of uh, uh, interacting with him as as a translator because you're you have a very intimate relationship so I thought well I better translate something by Tolstoy and at the the launch for my Chekhov books my editor at Oxford Classics said well I wonder if you've got any suggestions for translators of Tolstoy because I'm looking for new translations of you know things like Anna Karenina and I thought oh no <laughs> what have I letting myself in for so that's why I ended up translating Anna Karenina. And, and interestingly, the whole process was quite different because whereas uh, with, with um, Chekhov, the experience of translation really affected the biography. Uh, and that's an unusual take on Chekhov's life, which is arranged through his relationship with place. With Tolstoy, it was the other way around. And I had done a draft of half of Anna Karenina and then had to break off to write the biography. And when I came back, having written the biography to do the rest of Anna Karenina, I realized what I'd done was terrible. Um, <laughs> and because I'd got to know Tolstoy so much better. Yeah. And so it really had a big impact on the translation. So yes, yeah, so I didn't uh, set out really with the sort of conventional biographer's approach. Uh, although I was very aware with both Chekhov and Tolstoy, that there was an anniversary. Uh, so 2004, when my Chekhov books came out, it was the 
150th anniversary of his death and with Tolstoy of course 2010 when my book came out in in the UK it was the 100th anniversary of Tolstoy's death um, and you know I, I, I did a, an undergraduate degree in Russian language and literature uh, here in England and I was well aware that all the materials on the great Russian writers uh, needed a bit of a fresh look uh, because in the years at the end of the Soviet Union everyone was dashing in to write about all the, the authors they couldn't write about before and right. so in a way the classics had been neglected uh, and so I, I thought it was you know quite justifiable to to look at someone like Tolstoy again and well I, I think if I really thought about it though um, I wouldn't have had the the nerve <laughs> to take on someone quite as but but I did it. <laughs> I, I'm I'm curious because and I think it came off very well. Uh, your your finished product. It, it's interesting that you said that knowing so much more about the the biography of Tolstoy influenced your translation. I'm you know I'm hopelessly monolingual. I've never done any translation work. Um, but that's that's kind of fascinating how that happens. So clearly, it's not just a, a transcription of what's written. There, there's you have to have a, a sense of the person's mind at play. Yeah, and you actually have to think about every single word and every single piece of punctuation. And I'll just give you a brief example of how the experience of writing Tolstoy's biography affected my translation. There's a there's a passage in the earlier part of Anna Karenina where Levin has gone back to his country estate with his tail between his legs he's been spurned by Kitty and all around spring is bursting forth and Tolstoy has this unbelievably beautiful lyrical description of spring arriving in Russia you know Levin's down in the dumps but suddenly he's, a, he's in, infected by the sort of new life and one of the things Tolstoy writes about is the the bees um, and I happen to know because I've written about it that Tolstoy had been a beekeeper and there are these two words there's a, a gerund and a participle if you want to be um, precise about the, the grammar and they they sort of looked as if they were straightforward to translate but in fact uh, I looked up all the other translations and everyone had a completely different version uh, whether it was an old bee or a new bee um, and what the bee was doing and I did some research and found a glossary of 19th century beekeeping terms for example <laughs> and you know <laughs> it, it but but you know it's important to get these things right and and Tolstoy knew he was using very specific terms because he he was an expert and I ended up writing an article for Beekeepers Quarterly <laughs> and then um, uh, eventually I put all the material and the examples of the translations in an article for the Tolstoy Studies Journal which you can download from my website on the articles page so if anyone's really interested you can uh, you know satisfy your curiosity <laughs> interesting yeah that's wow that's a huge level of involvement um, so I, I'm, I'm curious then, this um, taking Tolstoy's life and he is born into this aristocratic family, Count Tolstoy. Um, and, and even in later life, when he becomes like super spiritual, he seems to maintain this, um, 
some would call it egotism, but maybe we could say like a, a sort of a bedrock self-assurance that uh, partly maybe is because he's a talented writer and is aware of it. Um, but it seems also like he was kind of born into it. Uh, can you give us sort of a, a sense of just how privileged his family was in the scope of Russian society at that time? Yes, absolutely. And I, I should just add as an addendum to the answer to your first question that what I set out to do in writing this new biography of Tolstoy was not to write a literary biography. It's very much the story of his life. And I think there were quite a few people in the Slavist community who were disappointed because they they thought that you know this new biography should really go into detail into war and peace but I found the scope of his life particularly after his spiritual crisis at the end of writing Anna Karenina absolutely fascinating and no one had really taken it seriously and there was so much more uh, in the way of, of fresh research materials to draw on so um, I just wanted to add that because I think that's that's important yeah. but to go back to uh, Tolstoy's background he, he was a, a terrible snob when when uh, he was a young man because he was born yeah Count Tolstoy he wasn't from the very sort of ancient Russian aristocracy I was, um, he wasn't from the very ancient Russian aristocracy because the title Count was actually only introduced in the 18th century under Peter the Great. So in, in a way, he was a bit of a parvenu, but uh, he could um, trace his family back into the medieval period, both on his father's side and his mother's side, particularly on his mother's side. That was the, the Volkonskis. So he was born to the landed gentry and that's a tiny proportion of the Russian population you know 90% of the Russian population are are peasants and most of them are serfs indeed when when Tolstoy is born in 1828 so we're talking about a very small part of the of Russian society and we're talking about a very small part of Russia so Russia is this immense country but educated Russia and the sort of upper classes are very much based in the Western European part of Russia. So Moscow, Petersburg, the two great cities, and then there are a few others as well. So uh, he's someone who had from the beginning uh, connections at court. He had a, a cousin who was a, a lady in waiting and he was very proud of his family ancestry. Uh, all the way, I think, even until the, the end of his life. Um, and War and Peace is very much a novel about the the sort of the, the true nobility of the aristocracy, uh, which he feels is one of the best things that Russian society has got going for it. It's you know got these great principles, uh, and it's only later that he starts sort of questioning it. Yeah, it, it's interesting because. When you say he started off as like a snob, he was um, he was a snob, but he was also, I mean, through his like early 20s and stuff like that, he was drinking, he was gambling, he was like running up gambling debts. Um, he wrote a novel somewhere in there, but a lot of it w was, it seemed like kind of a, a dissolute young man. Um, w but this is also through the lens of himself later in life describing this period and seeming kind of ashamed of it. Uh, do you think that he was kind of being harsh on himself in, in these descriptions or was he really 
as wild as uh, he claimed. No, he was pretty wild. And that was the, the problem, really, because the nobility lived literally off the, the labor of, of the peasantry. And this is what really fuels Tolstoy throughout his career, and increasingly so as he gets older, this deep seated uh, feeling of guilt towards the people. Um, and that's why the peasants are so incredibly important in his fiction. So he also had this, from a very early age, this sort of perfectionist zeal. He wanted to, he wanted to uh, improve himself. And he kept this, this Franklin diary when he was a young man. Uh, but, you know, he couldn't live up to his ideals. And yeah, he was someone of, you know, unbridled passions who, wanted to you know do what all russian young noblemen did which was to sort of carouse uh, at, at parties till late at night and with you know carouse with the gypsies and play cards and gamble and you know he was a gambler like all russians uh, and there was this sort of sense of in russian society of that you know the incredible lack of freedom and one of the few areas where you could exercise some kind of autonomy was in fighting duels and gambling at cards. So Tolstoy was not uh, different from that point of view, uh, except that he he did have this you know, extraordinary artistic sensitivity, which made itself manifest quite, quite early on. And, you know, when, when he started writing, uh, he, he already is beginning to submit everything that he does to minute analysis um and you know there's a sort of moral issue isn't there that we see in russian culture generally and he manifests that as much as as any russian writer more so yeah, well yeah moral issue seems like the the right way to describe it because he he eventually does join the army but he has this like huge reaction against it once he sees the, the horrors of war and becomes like politically activated. But I, it's interesting that he, uh, unlike uh, say like a guy like uh, Kropotkin, who uh, was another aristocrat turned anarchist, he didn't immediately become like a revolutionary. Um, what do you think was he struggling with this uh like fully embracing these ideas or did he have a different interpretation of them or why do you think well, he didn't do I, that? i think he just had he just was not interested in politics hmm. uh he was an anarchist he he didn't want any kind of politics you know he wanted to reject government in 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 its entirety he didn't like the idea of you know anything organized Organized. So uh, he was not someone who could ever have been a member of a club. You know, he, he wouldn't have ever wanted to be a member of a political party. And that that's that snobbishness, that sort of uh, aristocratic disdain, if you like, that he, he's always at the centre of things. And that that's also his uh, incredible egocentricity as well, that, that sort of narcissism. It's all about his experience. So, no, you could never imagine him becoming a revolutionary. Uh, but he became someone politically very dangerous in Russia through his moral crusade uh, in trying to expose the hip hypocrisy of, of Russian society. Uh, and, you know, every, everyone had to deal with politics to a certain 
level in Russia, whether you liked it or not. Um, and that, that was true back in the Tsarist days as it is uh, today. Yeah, it, it's, it's curious though, because he, he's not interested in politics in the sense that he wants a state, but there were definitely anarchists out there who were like uh, going to the, you know, the, I forget the name, like the Third International, whatever, you know, socialist conference, stuff like that, who were, you know, living underground and all these kinds of things. But he never, he never truly became a, a rebel in that sense, did he? No, he was only interested <laughs> in, in disseminating his religious views. Uh, mm. And we're talking about the period, yes, after Anna Karenina, until... Until he finished writing Anna Karenina in uh, 1877, he he had no uh, um, visibility or presence in Russian society beyond that of the novelist. And we see this big shift after Anna Karenina when he has that um, that big spiritual crisis. And you know, he first of all becomes very devout, uh, and then in his inimical way because he was a very mercurial figure, he, he suddenly just loses his patience with the entire body of the Russian Orthodox Church and comes out against it. And then for the next 30 years, he will start railing against it and writing anything he can and speaking out wherever he can. And that's what, what brings him into the, the eye of, of the Russian government then. So mm. he, he's not um, ever, wanting to do anything but uh, disseminate the the strange Christianity that he devises after his spiritual crisis. And, and that's what makes him um, someone who, he, he, you know, there are similarities with the revolutionary movement because everything that is, you know, not approved by the government is automatically seen as subversive in the, in the late 19th century. And because he couldn't, publish any of his religious works at the end of his life uh, in a in a traditional way because there was a spiritual censor and everything he wrote was banned beginning with confession which is the first big work he writes after his crisis when he talks about how he came to his new views so he resorted to publishing them abroad with revolutionary publishers who were smuggling things back in so he became a, a revolutionary figure but he was never um never of course wanting violence and there there is the big difference with the with the bolsheviks right. ultimately because he was this profound pacifist and that that's something that comes up in his sebastopol stories these amazing pieces of war reportage and you know he was there uh, at, at the front line in in the crimea fighting the british and the french and he got to see how backwards the Russian army was, um, how Russian society generally was very backward. And he was totally re re revulsed by the end, um, by, by the violence and the, and the bloodshed. So the first of those three Sebastopol stories is very patriotic and the Russian government loved it and wanted to sort of publish it in translations all around the Europe. But by the last one, we get to a point where he's speaking out and 
he's being muzzled by the censor or, already. And, you know, that's it's a long process because War and Peace is full of battle scenes, you know, amazing battle scenes. But um, he's he's got a sort of different agenda there. But at the end of his life, uh, of course, he's really preaching above all else non-resistance to violence. That's the most important message. And that, of course, completely distinguishes him from any of these revolutionary movements. In the 1870s, you've got these these populists, uh, and that word, of course, is very different to the way in which we use populism now with reference to US politics. Yeah. These are young people who go peacefully into the countryside, hoping to persuade the peasantry to embrace socialism. And they are ignorant, really, of what it's like to live uh, as a peasant in the countryside. And they're, they're shocked because when they get there and there are these thousands of very well-meaning, idealistic young people, the peasants, of course, are very loyal to the Tsar, despite the fact that they've been treated so badly over the centuries. And they, uh, they're very distrustful of these young students. And so that is what marks the turn from peaceful protest to to violence and you know already in those years there are attempts on the on the life of the Tsar but Tolstoy would never have joined in and in fact when Alexander II was assassinated he wrote one of his famous letters to the Tsar this was the new Tsar of course Alexander III pleading for clemency so you know he'd have never been accepted by, yeah. by the Communist Party <laughs> Totally. And I'm wondering also if there's um, an element where I remember I went to this uh, this meeting of this environmental group. People were sort of sharing their stories, how they got involved. And one guy was saying how, you know, he wanted to dedicate his life to music, but he found the issue of climate change to be so much more important. And I think that's noble. But I also had another thought at the same time, which was that it's like, OK, well, Mozart would never have done that. Um, and similarly, I feel like a guy like Tolstoy, when we say not quite as interested in politics, surely there must have been a part of him that knew that he was capable or thought he was capable of delivering some either a great message or great art to the world. And if you really believe that, I can't imagine someone like that sacrificing that opportunity to, you know, you join the underground and start throwing bombs and these kinds of things and basically sacrifice his entire life to, you know, sacrifice not just his life, but the work he could have done. Does, does that, do you feel like that's part of his motivation as well or? No, because he, he really felt that everything he'd done before the big watershed in yeah. the early 1880s was rubbish. Uh, he, he dismissed all his earlier fiction um, and was ashamed that he'd been writing for the pampered elite, the educated classes. He thought that uh, that was not what he should be doing. So it's, it's quite um, interesting to, to realize that he spent actually longer as a kind of Christian crusader than he did as a professional yeah. novelist so he felt that was um the most important thing he'd done in his life and actually you know there is this cliched view of tolstoy that you know there's the early tolstoy who was the novelist and then there was the later tolstoy who was the religious crank but actually there is a consistency and there are a number of, of books that are out there that that show 
that the ideas are there in embryonic form all the way from from the very beginning so uh, he wanted to to change russian society to bring in proper christianity because he felt that you know that it was everyone was was um a hypocrite yeah. uh, he wanted to live like a, a true christian and for him that that was the most important mission of his life and amazingly you know he was he he's someone who was full of contradiction um and even you know even at his you know late point when he was wearing peasant clothes and things people still saw him as a as a sort of great aristocrat i mean there is this sort of, um there is a, this this contradiction but nevertheless there is also this con this consistency that he was preaching the same ideas yeah. ever louder um and you know they they weren't they were a little bit extreme um all the way up till to 1910 when he when he died he was still working and you know of course he he had this sort of army of, of helpers around him. It was a whole great Tolstoyan movement and he didn't really want to be the leader of a movement, but he, he was addicted to being at the center of things. So uh, that's a, that's one of the examples of, of contradiction with him. Yeah, and it seems like sort of maybe one of like the first steps towards him, uh, at least stepping away from the the time of his 20s and you know being sort of a wild man um his brother dies and he gets married and one of the things that is just so shocking to me is that on like the night before his wedding he gives his wife this diary that details his entire sexual history he reveals that he had a a kid with one of his serfs i believe and I, I'm like, if that happened to me, I'd be like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what, what was her reaction? What was her, whose reaction? Uh, his wife's. His wife's reaction. Well, Sonia, uh, it was pretty much the reaction of Kitty and Anna Karenina because, of course, he uh, raided his own life for his fiction and put a lot of episodes from his own biography into into his prose, and so the the story of the marriage of Kitty and uh, Levin follows quite closely Tolstoy's own courtship of young Sofia. And I just wanted to, yeah, I just thought I should just add, though, in answer to your last your last question before I go on with this, that, you know, he put um, his his artistic talents at the service of his religious and moral views. So, you know, he did carry on writing, didn't he? He wrote yeah. that novel Resurrection, but I think most people would, would argue that, you know, the, the majority of his fiction doesn't really bear comparison to the earlier works with the exception of amazing stories like uh, the death of Ivan Ilyich and Haji Murad, for example. But to go back to the, the, the story of him showing his diaries well you know he wanted uh again to be totally open but again he was not really thinking about his fiance then who was half his age she was a young girl you know in the in the conditions of russian society in the 1860s she had a very sheltered life and had never really been outside moscow and suddenly she's been exposed to you know what grown up 
men got up to that she'd had no experience of at all so she was profoundly shocked just as uh, as kitty was and uh, and yet sonia was so um uh taken with this very charismatic man um and he he loved the idea of um trying to pursue this this sort of marriage which which he would somehow um you know he'd guide them both uh, but she had very little say I mean she never really had any say up to the end of his life and that's another of these great con contradictions there he is preaching sort of universal love and brotherly love and all that love thy neighbor but when it comes to his own family he's really quite found wanting um, mm. and he expects his wife just to go with him on his philosophical journey and of course she's been busy for the years when she's been bringing up children looking after the household uh, making sure there's food on the table and then uh, looking after you know the, the sewing of the, of the of the clothes that the kids wear and at the end of the the day sitting down and making fair copies of her husband's manuscript she loved to be a creative part of his of his world but uh, she she wasn't uh, an intellectual in the way that he was and she found it very very confronting and threatening when he started wanting to sort of walk away from their nice um, life in which he was a famous writer uh, so she she was being expected also to become vegetarian and to give up her title so she carried on being Countess Tolstoy and she came from a slightly uh, lower social stratum so she liked being <laughs> Countess Tolstoy and having spent you know 20 odd years living in the countryside and never going out so Tolstoy whenever he needed to go and see his publisher would you know would go to Moscow and although he hated modern technology you know he soon got used to getting on the train and Sonia couldn't do that so when they finally found a house in Moscow because their eldest children needed to go to school and university she was just dying to go to parties as as you would she was still a young woman and suddenly her her husband was becoming this ascetic and that was really really hard for her yeah yeah that seems uh, uh, the way sort of the story is framed sometimes this of Tolstoy's spiritual evolution is you know this guy's becoming holier and holier and his his family is just holding him back but like really, that that seems, man, that seems rough to marry into one expected version of a life, and then it totally just goes the other way, like. Yeah, exactly, and and you know she found that he was quite hypocritical in many ways. So, in eighteen eighty eight, he they have their first grandchild born, and also their last child. And this is when Tolstoy is writing that infamous story, the Kreutzer Sonata, because he's begin, become convinced that uh, procreation is uh, only you know, possible within a marriage and only for the purposes of producing children. And you know, any kind of sexual intercourse without that is, uh, is unlawful in, in his eyes. And so she cannot help but see him as a hypocrite for getting her pregnant again and you know there's a lot of Anna Karenina too which reflects poor old Sonia's life endlessly pregnant and that's the other thing you know she has um no chance really to get 
beyond you know bringing up one baby and then and then she's pregnant again and she uh we know went to petersburg and was really hopeful that she might be able to have some form of contraception because she'd got peritonitis you know she almost died and tolstoy was very traditional and was still adamant that she should you know be bearing children uh, as far as possible so it was very very complicated yeah and they had what like 13 kids they, yeah, she had more pregnancies, but there were 13 children who, who grew up and, you know, some of them died very, very young, uh, including their last child, who was a, a kind of sort of golden boy. Um, and they had great hopes of, of, of him following his father's footsteps. He seemed to be a sort of visionary, even as a, as a child, but he, he died um, very young. Yeah, that's... Uh... He, he, it, was that like typical at the time to have like, I, I know families tended to be like larger back then, I think, but w was over a dozen kids, would that have been like an outlier? It was fairly typical. Uh, the, the nobility, of course, had the wherewithal to raise lots of children. Uh, so I think it was more than the, than the average, nonetheless. Uh, but, I mean, I think you, you also see very, very large families in the merchantry because the, the merchant class, which is a completely separate class within this very um, caste-like society, they produce children because they need to have people who are going to continue the business because the class depended on you being able to show you had a certain amount of capital um and it's like a sort of snakes and ladders in, in russian society and you know there, there we see an example of tolstoy's snobbishness because in his fiction he writes about the aristocracy and he writes about the peasants and it's invariably the peasants who the ones who are painted in a in a golden light but the people in between um don't really get a look in there are hardly any merchants who are characters in tolstoy's fiction um and obviously there wasn't really a middle class but the merchants were routinely despised for dealing with money um and so they get very short shrift in the pages of Anna Karenina and in and other stories that he writes later on. Well, speaking of Anna Karenina, uh, you did a wonderful translation of that. Um, and it, it seems, uh, from what I've heard about the writing process of it, uh, it seems to sort of speak to what you said earlier about using his artistic talents to serve this sort of spiritual idea. And I had heard that sort of like the first draft of Anna Karenina um, she was, the, the character of Anna was much more, um, like, uh, two-dimensional as being like, uh, much more just like, clearly the author was wagging his finger at her and, you know, the, the moral was overly obvious, but every time he did like a redraft, she got like more and more complicated and more full human being. And do you, do you feel like there's that kind of, uh, tension there with Tolstoy, the artist between his wanting to create like realistic and great art and also wanting to have this, you know, important message come across. Well, yes. I mean, Anna does come to life in a way that surprises probably the, the author and she's, she's very, um, multidimensional as a character. And that's why we still read Anna Karenina and still argue about what it all means because quite understand 
Tolstoy's intention was, you know, there's that famous epigraph, mine is the vengeance and I will repay from Deuteronomy. Who is the one wreaking the vengeance? Is it is it God? You know, does that mean that Anna has to die because she's committed adultery? Um, she's someone who's stuck in this dreadful marriage, and so we we become very uh, sympathetic towards her. And Tolstoy was, and he had an aunt who said, you know, you should um, punish the crime but not the sinner. Um, and so she does emerge as a sort of very interesting. Um, human being and yet we have to also remember that Tolstoy spent a lot of time writing this novel I mean he began it in 1873 and was beginning already to have terrible depression when he was writing it so he would sort of down his pen and you know people will be left hanging because the the first installments came out and you know the first installment ends with the famous ball in Moscow where Anna dances with Ronsky, and that's when you know Levin is is very cut up um, and thinks that you know all hope is lost. Uh, and then Tolstoy feels that he just can't go on with it, and that's why the character of Levin comes in because he actually uh, is he's very engaged by the whole woman question, which of course was a question that was being discussed all around Europe all around the world in the in the United States as well of course in the in the late 19th century but ultimately he really wasn't very interested in the fate of an aristocratic Russian woman who's been unfaithful to her her husband and his feelings change and I think that's what makes Anna such a complicated character because I think as the novel progresses you could see and find justification for uh, looking at the way in which Tolstoy becomes more critical to her as a character. She becomes very self-obsessed uh, and she's got this habit of screwing up her eyes because she doesn't want to see reality and you know she's she's not quite the same woman at the end of the novel that she is when we first encounter coming as a kind of peacemaker in the Oblonsky household. So I think that's also um, something to take on board that you know this is a novel which was written and published in stops and starts uh, the yeah. last installment came out in 1877 so it's four years and and you know his feelings were, were, were changing about her I think which is amazing that it still achieves this like unified effect even though he had differing feelings about her throughout the course of his writing you know I mean it, uh, you, you would think that there would be some kind of inconsistency, but I guess not. I mean, um, I, and one of the things I wanted to ask you, as particularly being a translator of this work, and it's a big work, a big effort to translate it, and after his spiritual crisis, he basically looks back on this and all his other work, uh, you know, before it, as being um, almost like vanity projects. Um, there, there's a, a passage in a, a confession where he's, he's walking around his estate and he's like, you know, okay, fine. I'm on the level of a Shakespeare. So what, you know, do, do you, um, do you look at this book as a, a vanity project? I think it's more that he despised everything that he'd written um, up until and including Anna Karenina, as I, as I was saying before, that he he's yes he's you know a, a man of incredible gifts, and yet you know th there's this 
spectre of death behind everything. And that's what really uh, makes him start reflect deeply and rethink his whole attitude to artistic creation and to the meaning of life. I mean, Anna Karenina is one of those great Russian novels where we have some kind of discussion of what the meaning of life is, don't we, At the, towards the end with, with, with Lievin. So what he's doing is pre presenting us with three different marriages, isn't he? The, the Oblonskys, and then there's, there's Levin and Kitty, and then there's Anna and, and Karenin and showing us you know what what the right path possibly is and it's really a, a difference between the idea of of romance and 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 real love which is not necessarily full of romantic drama is it it's much more sort of humdrum and everyday and yet even though levin at the end of the novel is happily married he's left feeling that he hasn't quite puzzled out what the meaning of it is and we don't really know when he gets to the end uh, of his processes and he's sort of reached some peace we don't really know whether it's going to be permanent uh, you have a sort of feeling that actually <laughs> a little bit down the road he he's going to you know start having further um worries about where his life's going uh, so i think for tolstoy you know, I, he, yes, he was very harsh about his uh, earlier works. I don't think it, he ever regarded it quite as a vanity project. He just, I think, just was contemptuous of everything that he'd written as a, as a professional novice because he didn't think he should be making money. And he thought that the main thing was for all Russians to learn to read and write and all Russians to be able to read fiction. So he took great care to try and simplify his style so that he could write fiction that was going to be accessible to a much wider section of the public pub, population excuse me and you know that's why he also got very involved in education i mean i was really quite surprised to find myself in the middle of writing this biography to be incredibly inspired by what he did for education and you know he was a very contrary figure who at the time when they were just coming up to the great reforms of the 1860s, you know, the, and, and of course, the, I think the, the most important event of Russian history is still the abolition of serfdom in 1861. At that time, he set up all kinds of um, schools for the peasant children around his estate and in the neighboring villages, and he's implying um, young students to teach them because for him, that's um, the most Im important thing and he's appointed when the abolition process starts to be a kind of mediator with other members of the nobility and he's on the side of the peasants which is so unusual because the majority of landowners around him are um aghast at losing their privileges you know they've been living very comfortably off the the, the labor of their peasants and suddenly they they've lost their privileges and so tolstoy becomes a hate figure for actually wanting to go sort of further and that that's you know entirely to his his credit and there there is in russian this this concept of the the repentant nobleman the kayushisyadvaryanin and he's you know the the archetypal example of that who who someone who wants to atone 
for the sins of earlier generations and dedicate himself to the people. So that's why, you know, in Anna Karenina, the, the best chapters, I think, are when, when Levin's out there scything with the peasants. I mean, that's what mm -hmm. um, Tolstoy puts his heart and soul in. I was quite surprised when translating because you'd think, you know, this great love story that the most beautiful passages are going to be there, the ones concerning the chapters about Anna and Vronsky, and, and not a bit of it. Tolstoy puts um, more love into describing nature um, and life on, on the land. Um, it, you, you mentioned in there that uh, he later in life sort of simplified his style to, to make it more accessible. Um, there would be some people who criticize uh, him as actually like narrowing his concept of art. I, I don't know if um, you, you've probably read the uh, uh, Tolstoy's essay on Shakespeare um, and um, the, uh, George Orwell has a reaction to Tolstoy's essay, but basically in the essay, Tolstoy is criticizing Shakespeare and partly um, not just, you know, artistic deficits and some of them are seem to be like just criticisms, but partly he seems to have a problem with uh, Shakespeare's morality perhaps. And, uh, you know, oh, he's not using these plays to basically be like, you know, very artistic parables. Um, and Orwell was criticizing him saying, you know, hey, uh, you're, uh, you're throwing shade on King Lear, but it seems like in a lot of ways, you know, you are King Lear at the end of your life. Um, do you have any strong reactions to that sort of back and forth? Um, do you feel like it's fair to say that I mean, if he had not written Anna Karenina and War and Peace, perhaps we wouldn't care as much about his spiritual transformation. I think, um, well, you can't, <laughs> you can't really have the one without the other. I, I mean, we wouldn't have the later bit if we hadn't had the earlier bit. I mean, right. yeah. Um, he, he, Orwell was a, was a very great writer and a very great critic and says a lot of very sensible things about Tolstoy who had very extreme views about art and put them into a notorious treatise in 1897 called Stotakwe is what is art and he was putting forward you know his very narrow-minded views that you know art should communicate ethical ideas of brotherly love that's what it is in a nutshell so all of his fiction written uh, after Anna Karenina is putting forward those ideas and that is why it is not held to be as great on the whole as his earlier works and I find it an irony really that there is deeper spiritual content in his earlier fiction than there is in all of his great religious totally. treatises because um and and i think chekhov is a very good person to to bring in to the discussion here uh, this is something i've spent some time thinking about because chekhov I, I mean i finally did answer my question as to you know uh what chekhov saw in tolstoy having written <laughs> an entire biography of tolstoy chekhov always revered Tolstoy as an artist and would reread War and Peace and Anna Karenina and he revered him as a man as well because he didn't have the um, any fear in standing up for what he believed in and it's really 
crystallizes in the in the 1890s when there's a terrible famine across central Russia and millions of peasants die because there's a terrible harvest and the government just sits on its hands as usual and Tolstoy shows them up by going to the villages in these um, provinces like the Yazan province and opening up soup kitchens and he is an inspiration to people like Chekhov who then follow his lead and help as well and because we're already talking about a point where he's quite well known abroad. He becomes a celebrity abroad for these newfangled ideas he has. Uh, he's very successful in getting people to publicize what he's doing in say the British press. And that's very embarrassing for the government and they just don't know what to do with him. So uh, for, for Chekhov, Tolstoy is, as for most of the Russian population, the true moral leader of, of Russia. He's the real Tsar. Um, and it's a terrible own goal when the Orthodox Church excommunicates him in, in 1901 for you know his supposed blasphemy. But the um the issue about you know art and morality, Chekhov um happened to write an extraordinary letter to his editor Alexei Suvorin in 1894 and this is a letter in fact I wonder if I can find it I can maybe um, quote a little bit from it because it really gets to the the heart of the of the matter uh, he writes a letter where he says basically that's it you know um he 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 just likes a little bit too much of fine living he like he in one letter i like um uh sprung carriages and you know things like that a little bit too much to become a tolstoyan and it's very interesting that when he writes this letter uh, on the very same day he's finished a story called the student which is one of his greatest stories it's a tiny little story and it's all about um a student who temporarily loses his faith and then ends up uh, on good friday retelling the story of peter's betrayal of christ to some peasant women he comes across and they are profoundly moved because he has to uh, put the story into his own own words and not just parrot the old church Slavonic which no one can understand and their reaction infects him and what is interesting about this story is that there are all kinds of allusions to war and peace and specifically to moments of epiphany in war and peace where for example uh, you know Andre's been visiting the Rostovs and when he arrives, you know, he passes this old oak tree, which is um, still without any leaves and he's depressed and he feels that nature's depressed and then Tasha and she infects him with her joie de vivre and when he leaves the Rostovs, he sees that the tree has come into leaf. And so there are all kinds of um, little references and subtexts in the Chekhov story that if you know your Tolstoy, you know that he's referring to war and peace. And he's basically saying that this is where the, the true um, religious meaning can be found, not in Tolstoy's essays. And I'm just going to find this, this letter now. I'm pretty sure I've got it. So Chekhov wrote some of the greatest um, letters 
ever, I think. He says, there was a time when I was strongly affected by Tolstoy's philosophy. It possessed me for six or seven years and I was affected not so much by his fundamental ideas with which I was already familiar, than by the way in which he expressed them, his very reasonableness and no doubt a species of hypnotism peculiar to him. But now something inside me protests against it. Reason and justice tell me there is more love for mankind in electricity and steam than there is in chastity and abstaining from meat. It is true that war is evil and courts of law are evil, but that does not mean I have to go about in bast shoes and sleep on top of the stove beside the labourer and his wife and so on and so forth. But all this is beside the point. It's not a matter of being for or against. What it amounts to is that whichever way I look at it, Tolstoy has simply passed on. He's no longer in my heart. And when he departed, he said, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So that's a quotation, ironically, of course, from, from the Bible. So Chekhov was an atheist and he uh, nevertheless loved the, the beauty of the language. And like so many um, people thought that Tolstoy was throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater, you know, by trying to sort of pack life into these commandments and that it's, it's about more than that, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm curious, we're, we're almost at an hour here and I don't want to take up too much of your time, um, but when we talk about uh, the end of his life and sort of a very famous episode uh, where he, you know, he's kind of going back and forth and, you know, how how much is he going to live, you know, the, the life of a, you know, voluntary poverty and his family's like, no, please do not give up all your money. Um, and ultimately he flees his estate and I guess to live sort of the life of, uh, you know, a wandering mendicant and he dies, um, not in the railway station, but in the, the station master's apartment. Um, how, how do you feel about that? Is that like a sad ending? Yes, it is. It's tragic, isn't it, I suppose, because there was a terrible kind of menage a trois going on at Tolstoy's family home in Yasna Pagliano at the end of his life. And Sonia just ended up losing her marbles a bit because she was driven to distraction by her husband's um, very close relationship with his chief disciple, Vladimir Chetkov. And, you know, she felt very displaced. Uh, she was his wife and she clung to the marriage. And it was very distressing for her to see everything crumbling and to see him walking away. I don't think Tolstoy felt it was sad. I think, I think the sad thing, of course, is that Yes, you know, he, he fell ill and then the world's press descended on that little station in the middle of, of nowhere and he never managed to get very far and whether he would have really managed to have survived being on his own is a matter of speculation really because he wanted to be able to communicate his ideas. So it's it's a bit of a mystery, really. Uh, I mean, the, the fact is, though, that his death in 1910 had a massive impact on the revolutionary movement. And I think this is quite surprising for people to learn that, you know, around about 1917, when 
the Tsarist regime collapses and then you've got World War One and revolution, Tolstoyanism is as powerful as Marxism for quite a time. And it ends up being actually a bit of a threat to the communist utopia because these Tolstoyan movements start producing uh, communities and they are living a kind of proper communist life <laughs> and it's a little bit too communist really because they don't have uh, any belief in in money um, they believe in tilling the land they believe in sharing they don't believe in violence but the the uh, communist party and the bolsheviks couldn't couldn't deal with that and you find in the 20th century these communities fleeing to the edges of the soviet empire much as the sectarians did in the in the tsarist empire and then they're simply ex extinguished and Tolstoy's very powerful ideas about pacifism are then also extinguished, despite the fact that Lenin said that, you know, everything that Tolstoy wrote should be published. And they did this extraordinary 90 volume edition of his works. Well, they published the spiritual works because they were obliged to, but it took them about 20 years to get those volumes out. And they came out in a very, very small print run. The books were very expensive and no one could read them. And the, the Soviet government come World War II started totally putting to one side the pacifist Tolstoy and promoting the Tolstoy of the Sebastopol sketches and, and war and peace. And that's what most people in Russia in the 20th century grew up with. And it was interesting at the time of the centenary of Tolstoy's death that the date was marked all around the world except in in russia really they didn't really want to have to deal with oh. this uncomfortable position of a writer who'd been excommunicated by the church and of course the church is very powerful in russia now and someone who had you know preached uh, non non-violence uh, at a time when that really is you know not not very popular uh, in official circles shall we say mm -hmm. Fair enough. Um, <clears throat> Rosamond, um, before we go, uh, is there, uh, you, you have a website, um, any, anything else that uh, you'd like for people to know or be able to reach out? Well, I think just go back and read uh, Tolstoy. I think that's the, the best thing. And, and, and read uh, Chekhov along with Tolstoy. I think you can see a very interesting dialogue that Chekhov has with Tolstoy's ideas and a number of stories like the lady with a little dog, for example, in which the main character is called Anna, and she is also unfaithful to her husband. There are a number of stories where Chekhov is engaging with Tolstoy. Uh, the story Gooseberries, for example, another one where he is challenging Tolstoy's ideas in the story, um, how much land does a, a man need? Uh, so I think it's the works where I would think that people could, could most um, uh, satisfactorily really in, engage the, the, the works them, themselves and not just the, the early works, but some of the later works too are still ones that are worth reading. Excellent. Uh, Rosamond, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you to Rosamond Bartlett and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.